Good morning, everyone. Kids, you're dismissed for Gospel Project. Have a great time as you continue to learn. Um, everybody else, we will be back in Isaiah this morning, actually. So turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is where we will be. Uh, Tad prayed for uh, Patrick and Becky Patterson. If you were here at our members' meeting, you heard them share, but I wonder if you just wave your arms up. Thank you. Uh, Patrick and Becky are dear friends, and they're former residents here who now are Church on Mill adopted missionaries in East Asia, doing important and difficult work. Uh, they'll be here for another six weeks or so. So if you haven't met them yet, I would commend them to you. And if you have, do try to catch up with them. They're, they're here in order to uh, be refreshed and encouraged in the Lord. So let's make sure we do that well. So we are in um, a new series that we started last week simply called The Four G's. And this is um, a way of describing some of God's characteristics. Last week we looked at the first one, which is that God is great from Isaiah 40. Today we're going to talk about the glory of God, meaning that God is glorious. Next week we'll do God is good. And then finally, uh, we'll talk about God as God being gracious. So I wonder if you'd say those uh, with me out loud. Uh, God is great. God is glorious. God is good. God is gracious. Be great things for us to uh, learn, commit to memory. Um, each one is from... Uh, Tim Chester's book, You Can Change, that we use in Disciple Makers, and he's added a, a tagline, if you will, or a corresponding result. And that those go like this, God is great, so we don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. And God is gracious, so we do not have to prove ourselves. Those are all wonderful news, right? What we want to do in this series, just to go right through the front door and tell you what we're seeking to accomplish, what we're asking God to do, is that for those who are here who are not yet Christians, uh, we're so thankful that you're here. We're asking God all week long if, as we talk about these characteristics of God, that He would persuade you that He really is these things, that He is good, that He is gracious that He's glorious, and that He would win over your heart so that you would trust Him. Those of us in the room who have already found, have been found by Christ, we're asking that for us, God would lessen the gap between what, what we say we believe and what our actions reveal we actually believe. There's this gap for us between our profession, what we confess that we believe, and then when life squeezes us, if you will, what comes out is what we functionally believe. And in all of us, there is some distance between those two things. And so we're simply asking the Lord that as we look in His Word at His character, that He'd help us to see areas of unbelief, that we might grow by acknowledging those to Him and asking Him to narrow the gap, mind the gap, if you will. 
Uh, a different way of saying that is we want to help each other as members, as brothers and sisters in Christ, just develop more street-level godliness in the stuff of everyday life. We want to do that today by considering the fact that God is glorious. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you, and we're on page 391 looking at um, Isaiah 6. Oasis is going to read for us. So, Oasis, why don't you come on up? Are you done with school? Not yet. One more week? Okay. Here we go. Read for us. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Thank you, sister. Two awkward claps. <laughs> Thank you, Oasis. Um, this is undoubtedly the most famous passage in, in all of Isaiah. I'm looking forward to seeing what the Lord would teach us today. Um, it may not seem like it to you at first glance as we listen to Oasis read uh, the passage. But if, if you're prone to fearing people, now I, I don't mean uh, f- fearing their physical harm, fe- feeling fearing them being bigger than you and hurting you. Not that kind of fear. More the fear of craving their approval. Or perhaps for a lot of us, a way that displays itself, of using social media manipulatively to make ourselves look better or lives more glamorous than they actually are. If you're prone to the fear of people, this particular passage in the Bible is wonderful news. Wonderful news. This text that seems so inaccessible to us, filled with kind of rather bizarre language that we're unfamiliar with, can meet us right in a point of great need. So many of us are mortified by the fears of rejection or not gaining the approval of others in some area of our lives, not being okay with ourselves if somebody else is not okay with us, these kinds of issues. This is what the Bible calls the fear of man. The implications that flow out of this passage can completely erode the ground out from underneath the fear of man. And so that's what we're going to ask the Lord to do today. I wonder if you'd pray with me just for a moment. God, in this series of messages, we're asking you to do something supernatural. And that's to persuade us 
that what your word says is true about you is true about you. And there are days in which our eyes seem to see a reality different from the one your word tells us about. And whether we are just considering the claims of Christ or we've been Christians for decades, there are times that we will fear others. Some of us in the room are completely oppressed by this particular fear. So would you do what only you can do? Would you shine the light of Christ from this text through your spirit that we might know you more? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, for those of us who struggle with this fear, the world's dominant message for us is that we need more self-esteem. This is probably never more readily obvious than in the way we do school and sports today. Um, everyone gets a trophy. Everyone gets a star. Everyone gets a sticker. Right? Because our, our biggest need is to have a better view of ourselves more self-esteem. The message of the Bible is that our esteem is generally too high. That what we need is not better self-esteem. That our problem actually is that we fear people instead of fearing God. That the way to actually feel better about ourselves is to see how much more highly we value and esteem the opinions of people than we recognize the character of God. Now, this seems rather counterintuitive, but the only way to beat the fear of people is with a greater fear. The only way to conquer the fear of rejection is to recognize the God who knows everything about you in Christ does not reject you. The only way to beat fear is with a greater fear. So today we want to talk about this idea. God is glorious. Therefore, we don't need, we don't have to fear people. Now let's do the work in Isaiah 6 and discover that together. There's one word in this passage that I'm praying will absolutely capture your attention. It's the word glory. Now, every other time I've ever taught Isaiah 6, I've really majored on the word holy because it's really what binds this text together. It's the dominant idea. But today I want to point to that word glory. The latter half of verse 3 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Glory is one of those weird words Christians use a lot, but nobody seems to know what it actually means. So let's just admit that to each other. All right? We use it, but what is it? It's actually a rather hard word to describe. That's part of the difficulty in understanding what it means. It's not an easy thing. 
But at, at the root of the word, in its Old Testament usage, it means wait. It means wait. Now, not in this sense. You had more donuts this morning than you should have, so you're filled with extra glory. <laughs> not in that sense. But, but wait meaning value or worth or impressiveness of someone. You with me? Okay. So, my dear friends, if the weight of God's splendor fills your heart, there will be no room left for fearing people. If the weight of the splendor of the glory of God fills your heart, there will simply be no room left for fearing people. As the Scripture tells us, perfect love casts out fear. Now, glory is an enormous theme running throughout the whole Bible. Here's a couple of ways in which the Scripture would show us what it means. That the glory of God is the sum total of who He is and what He does. Now, to, to put that in a way in which we might commonly think of it, when we say we've seen someone standing in all their glory, what do we mean? Rather uncomfortable now, aren't you? It, it means that we've seen them naked. It means that we've seen all that they are. To see God in His glory is to see God in all that He is. Now, God doesn't stand naked. He doesn't have a body. But we use the term in the sense that the glory of God is the display of who He is and what He does. It's the self-revelation or self-disclosure of God. God's glory is the splendor, the beauty, the magnificence of the God who is without equal. The glory of God is God's weight, the honor of who He is. Does that make sense? Again, a word often used but hard to get a handle on, to really understand. Perhaps we could think of it this way. We tend to be people pretty fascinated with the rich and famous. So, rhetorical question, don't blurt it out, but who's the most recognized person you've ever seen? Not on TV, not on your phone, but in real life. The most famous recognized person you've even met. You would describe that person not using the word, but as a person of glory, as a person of weight, as an impressive person. Uh, not long after Jill and I were married, we were living in Oklahoma at the time and went to a conference in California. It's the first time Jill had ever been there. So we took a day to drive around Southern California and see all the famous sites. And one of the places we went was Rodeo Drive. Perhaps you've heard of it. And as we're pulling onto the street, Jill is chattering about looking forward to seeing someone famous. And so we're parallel parking, about to get out of the car, and I lean over to my new wife about a year at this point and said, sweetheart, the chances of seeing someone famous are incredibly small. Don't be disappointed. 
So I got out of the car, and literally, within 60 seconds, here comes Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> All by himself. And it, it, it's literally the, the three of us on the street. He's walking towards us. We're walking this way. I'm thinking, there's no way that's actually Arnold Schwarzenegger because he was like this tall. And so we kind of awkwardly are looking at each other, and Jill says, hi. And he says, hi. And then he walks past us. And we stopped sort of stunned looking at each other, realizing this was, this was before he was even governor. So I, I grew up on the incredibly dumb movies he was in. <laughs> you know, a young boy, you just think this is the coolest guy on the whole planet. But he is as, as thick as he is tall. So for the rest of the trip, what are we talking about? When we get home, what are we talking about? We saw Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's an incredible moment. That's all we could talk about for weeks. People go nuts when they meet a well-known actor or athlete or artist or speaker. Now imagine meeting President Trump. Excellent response. <laughs> Whether you're a fan or not, the, the presidential office of the United States of America bears weight, does it not? Or imagine meeting President Barack Obama, or President George Bush, or President Bill Clinton, or the other President George Bush, or President Ronald Reagan, or President James Carter, or President Gerald Ford, or President Richard Nixon, or President Lyndon Johnson. Now, imagine living somewhere in which in the span of time that we have had 10 presidents, you had one, 52 years. Welcome to Isaiah 6, 52 years. I heard this week that, and who knows whether this is true or not, that Trump had begun his candidacy for the next round of voting. Isaiah lived in a place and time where he had had a good king, mostly good, for 52 years. This had been a good time to live in Israel. This king had mostly led the people to follow God. You can read about him in 2 Chronicles 26. Uzziah had reigned for 52 years, he was a good, stable king. But in Isaiah 6, where is he? He's dead. This is a moment of national crisis for Israel. Just imagine what you might feel if you had lived in a place with a relatively good leader for 52 years, and then the announcement goes out that he's dead. This is a national crisis. King Uzziah picked, quote-unquote, a, a rather 
horrible time to kick the bucket. The Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser III, was making a great military campaign, conquering neighboring countries at exactly the time the king died. And so there was already in the nation of Israel this angst. Are, are we going to stand against the Assyrians or will they conquer us? And in that moment, as the nation's already asking those questions, the great king Uzziah died. Eventually, of course, they fell to Assyria, and Assyria became the world's superpower. You're Isaiah. You're hearing news of a, a powerful people coming your way, and your king died. Isaiah felt overwhelmed. Isaiah felt afraid. So where did he go? He went to the temple. In, in, in our language, he went to church. And God did something for Isaiah in that moment that for all intensive purposes, as far as we know, had never happened for him before and never happened in the same way again. God gave him a vision. God gave him a clearer picture of who he is. And this is Isaiah's call to prophetic ministry, and yet it's not about Isaiah. It's about God. Isaiah was overwhelmed by what, or rather who, he saw. Did you catch it as our sister read to us? Who did Isaiah see? He saw the Lord. Isaiah went to church that day believing King Uzziah was great and powerful. Isaiah left church that day with the recognition that God is great. God is glorious. Verse 1 starts out, In the year Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. Uzziah was great. Uzziah was good. Uzziah was powerful, but he was dead. God was alive. You see the great contrast being written for us? This great king that a nation had rallied around was gone, but a greater king was not. And not only was this God alive, he was magnificent. In some ways, our language is like a, a, a leash that tethers us. And we are strained at the very most full length of that leash in this text. Because, you see, there's these beings in heaven, some kind of angel, so magnificent we can hardly describe them, let alone comprehend them. They have six wings this isn't wasted language. Look at what the text says about them. There's these wings that describe them as being humble, so they're covering their eyes, while at the same time fluttering around, while at the same time showing humility because they're covering their feet. 
yet they possess supernatural power. When they speak, the very foundations of the, tem- the temple shake. Booming, marvelous power. But they're not there for themselves. There's no attention being drawn to them. They receive no worship. For all eternity, these beings have been raptured up with the praise of God. To us, they're splendid beings, but they're nothing but the flicker of a small candle before the Arizona midday sun. These are incredible beings, but they're worshiping the glorious God. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I don't walk around every day talking like this. this. This is not normal, everyday language. And for Isaiah, this wasn't a normal, everyday experience. And probably none of us in this room, no matter how close we get to Christ, won't have this moment, this side of heaven. But it's recorded here for us so that we could see something of the glory of God. So magnificent is God that these indescribable beings are caught up with His worship. Now notice what they're saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Brothers and sisters, the the nature and the character of God is magnificent and full of splendor. He is better than you can imagine. Now, what is it about God that they're so captivated with? It's His holiness. The most common character trait of God thought about today is that God is love. Now, some other time we'll talk about the fact that when we tend to say that, we're not actually describing what love is. But that's for another day. So you've got to come back. It seems that if God wants you to know something about Him, He wants you to know that He's holy. This is the only thing about God that the Scriptures repeat. And this happens multiple times in the Bible. And it's not simply that these angels are kind of stuck on repeat. It's... it's that God wants you to know He is perfect. Imagine, if you would, just for a moment, never taking something good, like work or sex or kids or hobbies or beauty or friends or a home or finding a spouse. Imagine never taking one of these good things and turning it into something you want so bad that it takes on harmful, addictive qualities. 
Imagine never doing that a single time. Imagine never... Bless you. Imagine looking at someone or something beautiful and simply appreciating it or her or him. And, and that appreciation not seemingly with a flip of a switch turning to lust. Imagine for all eternity never lying, never hoarding, never lashing out in anger, never having a selfish thought, never overspending, never withdrawing in self-protection when you're hurt, never using somebody for how they'd make you feel. Imagine never taking a selfie for attention and then posting it on your Instagram. Friends, we don't make it a day without utter moral failure. And God, this being who has always been, who always will be, has always forever existed in complete perfection. This is why he's described as an inapproachable light, because his holiness is blinding. Isn't he beautiful? Friends, don't you see that God is not like us only a little bit better? God is holy. God is glorious. Now, what's happening with his glory? Do you see this in the text? The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, what does that mean? It means that that heaven, in a sense, is expanding, that the glory of God is more than can be filled up there. And so it's spilling out. He's filling everything else, that, in a sense, everything God has made is simply a container for His glory. But even that isn't enough to hold Him. His glory is infinite. He must be known in worship down here because he can't be contained up there. Earth, meaning everything good and right and beautiful, true, that God has made, is a display of the infinite glory of God. Now again, I recognize this is not our normal way of talking. But think of it like this. From the giggle of a child to the wisdom of an old man. From the beauty of an Arizona sunset to the gathering of God's people in worship. For the freedom of saying I'm sorry to that feeling you get standing on a beach when you can't see the other side. The whole earth is full of His glory. This, this means that nothing is ordinary. That everything good is a display of the glory of God. Everything good is bursting forth with praise to the glorious God because God is gracious and glorious. We spend our lives 
consumed with things. That are nothing. When the earth is full of the glory of God, let me try to press this a little bit further. Who did Isaiah see? There's kind of a, an intricate, careful, theological reading of the Bible that would get us here that we don't have time for today. But I believe who Isaiah saw is he saw Jesus. Now, John 1 can help fill in some detail for us. The Apostle John put it this way. It'll be on the screen. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is the one of whom I've said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, meaning the Father. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. So friends, an, an, an ocean or a sunset or a child's glory show, the, the child's giggles show the glory of God. But the blazing center of the splendor of God is, is harnessed, revealed in a person, namely Jesus Christ, God himself made flesh. And so if you want to see what Isaiah saw, look in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for this is simply an extended vision of the glory of God. Jesus lived in glorious holiness and then died in unimaginable sacrifice so that all who repent and believe will be filled with the glory of God through his good gift of salvation. Now that's great news. What does this have to do, though, with the fear of people? Chuck, you started with something very practical, and then you, you got way out there on us. Let's land this plane. Christian, if Christ has saved you, and you recognize in an ongoing way that God is glorious, you will not fear people. It is that simple. When you get on Facebook or Instagram to see how many likes you have and you feel a little bit better about yourself because you have more than you expected, 
or when you don't have any yet, and so you like it yourself. You are concerned with something that only God can fix. Tens of thousands of likes to your dumb little picture or your opinion on something cannot be fixed, cannot fill what you're longing for. You were made for the glory of God. I'm not saying don't use it. It might change what you post. Friends, if you know in an increasing way the glory of God, you won't need the approval of people. You won't crave their acceptance. You won't need them to be okay with you so you can be okay with you. Because you'll already know the King of glory has accepted you. And it doesn't matter how much money you have or how pretty you are or whether you have finally got the spouse you wanted or whether that degree is finally earned. In the end, that stuff can't accumulate enough mass to fill the weight that only God has. So Isaiah 6 is immensely practical to the rest of today. You don't live to be, need to be mortified by the fear of rejection or suffocated by the impossible demands of meeting the expectations of others. Why? Because this king who's sitting on the throne, whose seraphim are flapping around him, who are bellowing, holy, holy, holy. This king came, lived, died, rose again, and now offers himself to you. So brothers and sisters, if you compare yourself to others, if you often worry what other people think about you, if you crave the accolades of people, if you cave to peer pressure, if you're overcommitted because you can't say no, if you tell little white lies to make yourself look good, then please recognize your only hope is not to look inward and boast of self-esteem, but instead like Isaiah, to say, I'm a man or a woman of unclean lips. And then for God to come with his white-hot gospel and offer you his forgiveness. What's the response to the gospel, to the glory of God, to the recognition that he saved us? It is not, if you were here a while back. It's here am I, God, send me. It's mission. It's evangelism. And friend, if you're here today and you haven't responded to the gospel, would you hear 
what could be yours. And let me be clear, it is not yours right now. But it could be. Psalm 130 puts it this way. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. My dear friend, you could have the forgiveness of God. It really could be yours. But God asks for something very big. That's for you to acknowledge who He is. To confess with your mouth that you believe this Lord. And to turn from your sin to Him. This is more important and more urgent than you can ever imagine. And we would love, love, be overwhelmed with joy if you'd ask us a question or two after the gathering. Church, the world is full of people overwhelmed by the fear of other people. May the church be filled with people overwhelmed with the rightful recognition of who God is and the glad submission to Him on the throne. For that's what He deserves. And only that will chase away the fear of people. Would you stand with me and let's pray.